Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. At the end of last week's episode, King Uzziah crossed an item off his bucket list by stepping into the holy place in my temple, a place that only my priests were allowed to step. We commented on the pride motivating such a step, similar to the pride of King Saul, manifest in Saul making sacrifices he had no business doing either. I don't take the crown away completely from Uzziah as I did from Saul, but Uzziah is instantly relegated to the margins for the remainder of his days when leprosy spontaneously erupts on his forehead as he stands in the sanctuary holding incense confronting my priests who are trying to prevent his sacrilege. The priests, of course, know in an instant that Uzziah's sudden leprosy renders him unclean, a sign on the outside of what's on the inside. The presumptuous king is thus doubly unfit to be standing there. He's not a priest, and now he's got leprosy. But even Uzziah knows he's inviting a lightning strike if he stands there one more leprous moment. They all rush out and know we don't strike anyone with lightning. Uzziah's leprosy remains, though, and he lives out the rest of his days in quarantine as his son Jotham governs in his place. In spite of all the copious good of his early days, because of his pride and his unclean end, Uzziah is denied the honor of entombment with Judah's previous kings. Even in death, he is only buried in their general vicinity. In one life, Uzziah provides several ample examples for seeking us, for losing perspective in the wake of great blessing, for the subsequent pride born of that blessing shifting that attitude of humble seeking to its antithesis of outright rebellion and for the inevitable consequences triggered by that rebellious pride. Uzziah provides yet another heartbreaking tutorial in what is now a plentiful string of life lessons from which you can learn the easy way simply by hearing their stories and then choosing to follow their better examples and not tread in their lousier footsteps. Of course, there is always the option to wait to learn the same lessons in the same hard, consequential way as Uzziah, Saul, and all the others. We'd rather you didn't, though. Trust me, you'd truly rather not learn the hard way either. At this point, it's been roughly 150 years since our children split into two nations. Uzziah's son, Jotham, which means Yahweh is perfect, another son named in Dad's earlier faithful days. Sounds a bit like but clearly no relation to Gotham. Uzziah's son Jotham reigns in Judah. He is the twelfth king of David's line. Jeroboam II reigns in Israel. 
He is the twelfth king to follow his namesake in the north. Again, these twelves could represent the reaching of some level of completeness or fullness. Instead, they represent the reaching of nothing but the need for greater intervention in both kingdoms. You've seen how both Israel and Judah seem to be stuck in their own respective loop, each king at best unable to fully step out of the brokenness handed down to him. Some manage to somewhat walk on the way for part of their reign, yet are not able to shake off chronic sin like all those forbidden high places. Some kings make matters so exponentially worse that forbidden high place worship would seem to be a vast improvement by comparison. We've had a variety of flavors of prophet intervene at this and that juncture, some of them unnamed, most of them not memorable. Neither the boldness of Elijah nor the healing power of Elisha is enough to convince the kings to make anything amounting to lasting change. There have been some consequences here and there across the way in the hope of nudging my people back on course, but this also has not prompted them to fully open their eyes. And, as we've pointed out, our contract with the people requires us to allow and or enact some quite severe consequences should the people refuse to stay in the contract with us as they insist on deliberately breaking its terms. This willful ignoring and thus transgressing of the covenant's terms is something they have done, certainly in the north, for generations now. Instead of letting the boom fall, though, I am the parent that gives one last chance. Several times. We are now moving past the brief admonitions from our single-use prophets, past even the powerful appearances by Elijah and his protege. We are shifting from the repeated stern warning protocol to the I don't think you realize how serious this is lecture format. Therefore, we are now sending long lecturing prophets to both the north and the south, a sequence of them, in fact, over time. Each kingdom gets its own lecturing prophets in measured succession. And just to make sure that what we have to say to either kingdom doesn't get missed and dismissed, the prophet's lectures are going to be transcribed, preserved in writing, so that the kings and those that come after them can handily reference our words to them. If you want to split hairs in terms of timing, the prophet Amos is sent to Israel first. By the way, welcome back to those who skipped ahead. We commission Isaiah to confront Judah not long thereafter. The north is a much bigger mess, though, so their lecture begins earliest. Now, the reign of Jeroboam II isn't given much coverage in Kings. He gets all of six verses, 2 Kings 14, 23-29. The prophet Amos isn't even mentioned. In fact, another prophet is, Jonah. Yes, that Jonah. Feel free to find his account in Tom on your own. The big takeaway from Jonah is not how he stays alive at sea for three days, nor is it even that one cannot get away from me by any means of transportation. The overwhelming message in Jonah springs from the fact that I am so concerned about a people outside our covenant nation that we send them their own prophet, a point that drives Jonah himself crazy, almost literally. 
The fact that the people of Nineveh get the earliest lecture prophet and that his mission results in their repentance is the big kahuna lesson and indictment of my children who, spoiler alert, do not follow Nineveh's repentant example. As mentioned, Jonah's primary mission is to neither Israel nor Judah, but to Nineveh. But at some point, Jonah manages to convey a positive prophecy about Jeroboam reclaiming lost territory. Kings underscores that this is a merciful conveyance on our part in view of Jeroboam II's cyclical covenant failures. Call it one last try to capture Israel's heart through mercy. Amos, however, is not concerned with the restoration of Israel's borders, but rather with what's going on inside them. I find him in the same place I found David. Out in a field, shepherding sheep. Amos's hometown of Tekoa isn't even that far from David's Bethlehem, and thus is firmly in Judah. All that simple yet profound shepherd's understanding about life and leadership, just like we trained into phase two Moses after his formal Egyptian education, is woven into Amos's psyche too. As a shepherd, Amos's point of view is from the lesser societal strata rather than from aristocracy. His agrarian duties also include dressing sycamore fig trees. You see, if you slit the top of a fig still on the tree, it ripens faster and ends up sweeter. Feel free to try it. It's a tedious and time-consuming task, though, and not one pursued by any one of means. They have people who do that for them. Amos is one of them. As a southerner from Judah, Amos can speak freely to the north without fear of reprisals on his family, who are tucked safely away down near Jerusalem. Amos's lecture to Israel is stunning, beautiful, and frightening at the same time. This can actually be said of all the written prophets' lectures. Remember, neither our people nor our kings have been listening, and Amos and his brother prophets represent one final turning up of the volume. So we are pulling out all the stops and going super dramatic here. We are not making idle threats, mind you, but we are using language that's as vivid and attention-getting as possible. Before Amos's words are written down in the tidy form you hold, he's got to preach them to Israel first. He's not handing out flyers. He's standing in crowded places, worship sites, markets, etc., Amos 7.10. He's delivering a sorely needed colorful wake-up call to our children in the north. We launch our message to Israel with powerful imagery that ignites the land. I roar like a lion atop Zion and Jerusalem, and my voice withers the fields and dries up mountaintops. And you thought no one born before 1900 had an imagination. Don't miss the reference to Zion in Jerusalem. Zion would be the exact location of which important place in our relationship with our children? That's right, our temple. And so, from word one of his prophetic vivid lecture, Amos invests every phrase with weight and meaning. Apparently a parent of his own children, Amos knows how to capture attention. 
Not only does he have the lion roaring and withering picture going for him, what I say as the lion is also designed to draw our hearers in so they'll listen to what we have to say. And once again, all of this is being said to a habitat that has never seen a special effect or a computer-generated image in their lives. Amos doesn't start by laying into Israel for all its mistakes. He first scolds the neighbor kids, Syria, Philistia, and so on, and says how much trouble each one of them is in. Every neighbor, in every direction, is going to get it, and Israel's got a growing, gloating smile on her face about it. Then, just when Israel is pleased as punch that her enemies are all cruising for a bruisin', the boom falls with the final oracle against Israel herself. It starts in Amos 2.6 and goes on, well, until the end of the book. Thus says Yahweh, For the sins of Israel I will no longer hold back their punishment. Their sins of greedy oppression, selfish privilege, unbridled lust, rampant idolatry, graft, corruption, and excess. In all these things they roll around in spite of the fact that I've kept their neighbors at bay, not to mention pulling them out of slavery in Egypt and all. Already I've sent them prophets, but they've refused to listen. This time, though, a scribe is taking things down, so our words through Amos can't be so easily dismissed and forgotten. Thus far, both the chronicler as well as the writer of Kings have been focused on Israel and Judah's kings, the affairs of state, and the like, without much Congress in the lives of the rest of the people. As Amos's message unfolds, however, a snapshot of what's going on in the lives of everyone else develops, and it isn't pretty. You see, all these years of sin and self-focus by the kings at the head of the nation have set the pattern for and severely impacted the entire way of life of folks living under that poor leadership of monarch after monarch. Call it trickle-down turpitude. As such, Amos paints a landscape of a stratified, top-heavy society in which the haves are riding on the backs of the have-nots. I not only forecast judgment on the wicked altars in Bethel, an understandable sore spot this entire time, but also on the wealthy who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Amos 4, 1 Just as the king has summer and winter palaces in Samaria and Jezreel, the upper crust sports double homes too, decorating them with no less than ivory. They are likened to fat reclining cows calling for wine feasting together after their piles of worthless sacrifices, wallowing in excess while the poor go without. Amos 3.13-4.5 Thus the self-absorbed kings have bred a self-absorbed aristocracy that cares only for its own pleasure. Had the people been taught our law, they could have been drawn into our concern for all, and in the very least been held by our commands to make provision for the poor, such as in intentionally leaving a good bit of produce out in the fields to be gleaned after the harvest by those with no other source for food, recalling that Ruth and Naomi survived on this practice in their day. 
Instead of sharing their wealth, though, the owners hoard and grow plump, so delighted with themselves are the upper crust, that they've not even noticed our repeated attempts to get their attention to move them back on the way. Amos 4, 6-11 outlines a litany of hardships and wake-up calls Israel has undergone. Each ends with the refrain, Yet you have not returned to me. You, my friend, have. And we are walking together on the way. There is so much to Amos's message that we will stop there for today and resume our journey with him and others next time. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friends, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.